I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but if you don't mind... I'd like to not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch! Welcome to the Review to Death podcast. I'm Marcus. And I'm Luke. Well, we made it, Luke. Here's our 50th podcast, and we are celebrating with a new series and possibly our most favorite horror movie. Uh, I mean, it's my favorite horror movie of all time. 50, by the way, 50. That's awesome, man. Congratulations, dude. Uh, We made it. That's pretty great. That's a cool milestone. Our new series here is we're doing a sci-fi month. One thing that we have not really talked about on this podcast is our love of sci-fi. This month, the month of March, and maybe a little bit into April, we have picked a whole bunch of sci-fi movies, sci-fi horror, sci-fi action, sci-fi, you know, anything. And we're starting with John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, John Carpenter is a director that Marcus and I both love. Uh, We, you know, pretty much unanimously love most of his movies, I, I think it's safe to say. You know, I stated earlier, The Thing is not only my favorite John Carpenter movie, but it's it's probably my favorite horror movie of all time, or it's definitely in the top three, you know, if someone is, is you know, forces me to make a list. Definitely. You know, the, the first time I saw this, I was pretty young. Like, I want to say I was 10 or 11, and my dad put this on TV. Awesome, for, what, for whatever reason because <laughs> I, I i distinctly remember my brother being there as well and my brother's younger than me and you've seen him on <laughs> you've heard him on this podcast <laughs> so why this movie was on our tv and why we were up like late at night when it was on i don't know but <laughs> uh, the one thing i remember about watching this movie is that it scared me so much that I had to go like sit by my brother and I, I you know I like pretended I pretended it like that um it was like oh are you scared let me come sit with you but it's like no I needed to do it God I, I love your dad that's that's fucking great that's so good I'd love to talk to Nick about this too. The first time I've seen this movie I can't really remember but I do remember the second time I've seen this movie which is where in this uh, basically crystallized the fact that this is going to be one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's when I watched it with my dad. And this was right before I started college. Uh, he was living in Ohio at the time. There was a huge snowstorm outside. And we went to this podunk video rental store downtown, whatever this town was. And we rented the thing. I remember, you know, liking it or at least being interested by it when I was younger and we watched this thing and it just it blew my mind. I couldn't believe how amazing this 1982 movie. So it's just a year uh, younger than, than myself and Marcus are. Uh, and the special effects in it, the, the, you know, the story, the tension, just everything, how, how well it, it gelled together. And uh, man, I cannot recommend a movie more on, on any occasion, but if, especially if there's a snowstorm outside, definitely do yourself a favor and, and check this movie out. So the thing is actually got pretty long history to it. And it all started with a short story. It was a short story written by a fairly famous 
sci-fi uh, American writer. His name is John W. Campbell, pretty well-known American sci-fi writer who wrote this story in 1938. He was a pretty famous uh, science fiction writer and became friends with um, another you know, legendary science fiction writer by the name of Isaac Asimov, who once called Campbell the most powerful force in science fiction ever. Unfortunately, the two of them ended up kind of butting heads and separating because it turns out John W. Campbell is not such a great guy. And uh, he shared a lot of opinions that, you know, writer H.P. Lovecraft did regarding segregation and race and slavery at the time. Uh, basically, not great. So he became kind of an outcast in the field because of that. And I think uh, from what you described to me, Luke, I have not read the short story, but I know you have, is that John Carpenter's thing has a little bit more in common with the short story than the original thing movie that came out in 1951, which I have seen. That's right. The 1951 movie, which is directed by a guy named uh, Christian, uh, I'm not going to say this, his guy's name, right? Last name, Nibai. It's more of a, think of a pretty, you know, typical 1950s cheesy, you know, sci-fi horror movie where uh, the main villain is basically like a Frankenstein type, you know, Frankenstein monsters. Well, it's type. like, a, it's actually, it's like a vegetable almost. Yeah. It's like a it, reanimated vegetable. They call it, they call it, uh, uh, they call it something like along the lines of a, like a indestructible carrot or something like towards the end of the movie. <laughs> it's, it's. The thing about the 1951 thing, which uh, is called the thing from another world, is that, you know, it's just sort of that typical 50s era sci-fi movie, which is just all, you know, like subtext for the Cold War. I, I haven't seen it. I You have, right? I have. And, and, you know, it is like dictionary definition of 50s sci-fi. And there are some good things in it, like the the there you know there's like a typical slow buildup, and there's some pretty good shots. There's a shot where they're all sort of like all the scientists are standing outside and they're in a circle around like the alien landing site, which looks really good. But everything else is just sort of run of the mill. It's like got all you know like these clean cut soldiers and scientists and. You know, since this is around the time of the Korean War, everybody is like very military. And there's a lot of those movies from that era show is that, you know, the scares don't really stand up, but that's to be expected. But unfortunately, like the tension is just not good enough. Like there's better movies from that time period. Sure. And I've seen my share of, you know, 50, 60 sci-fi horror. And it's, uh, it's usually tends to lean on the cheesy side. Short story by Campbell. Uh, is not like that. It's it's actually pretty great. I actually I just read it for the first time between yesterday and today. I, I had never read it before, and it's pretty great. I, I definitely encourage you guys to to check it out. It's it's about forty pages. You know, it's written well. It's I guess I was not expecting it to flow as well as it did, being written you know way back in the you know nineteen thirties. But it's it's awesome. It, it starts out with kind of clunky with this, you know, huge exposition dump by one of our main characters. But, uh, you know, then we get a couple of scenes in the story that actually the the movie takes almost verbatim. And it's it's great. It's it's done really well. Uh, and the story actually has a much more positive, not positive, uh, optimistic ending 
than the uh, than the movie does. Then finally, before we actually get to the movie we watched tonight, there was a prequel slash remake slash another thing movie that they made in 2011. This 2011 movie stars Mary Elizabeth Weinstead. It's about the uh, Norwegian group that, you know, our main characters in the movie we watched tonight, they find, you know, their camp or the remnants of it. So it's all about, you know, what happened to them. And it's, it's okay. It's, you know, I remember at the time when it came out, I was pretty angry because like I said, this movie is like one of my favorites of all time. But uh, it's not that bad, but it's it's definitely, it could have been a whole lot better. And they, they lean pretty heavy on some not great CGI. You know, I've never seen it. And I think it was one of those things to where when it came out, it was like, how dare they make another thing movie? Because also, I, I feel like it wasn't marketed very correctly. Because from what I, you know, remember is it it really felt like they were just like remaking the thing. And I was like, well, fuck that. I'm not going to watch that. Which, you know, sort of incidentally is the same way that we felt about the dawn of the dead remake which uh, ended up being really good but you know that's true and you know and again that and i stand by it that that dawn of the, dawn of the dead remake is fucking great um whereas the uh you know the thing prequel remake reboot is it's forgettable it's not bad you know if you're a thing fan sure check it out but it's not something you need to do at all so on to john carpenter's the thing which came out in 1982 and by far the best thing iteration that there is. I mean, obviously it wouldn't exist without a short story, but quick little rundown of the movie. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Like now spoilers are going to be in this podcast because movie's 40 years old. It's a, a group of, you know, guys, scientists uh, at a installation in the Antarctic and they are minding their own business. When this dog starts running towards their camp, and it's being chased by a couple of Norwegians in a helicopter that are trying to kill the dog. And, uh, you know, the Norwegians are unhinged and they're shooting at the dog. And eventually, you know, one guy blows up and the other guy gets shot. And uh, the dog is not a dog. It is a alien from outer space, which we saw arrive at the beginning of the movie. And the whole thing about the thing is that this thing assimilates whatever it can. It can uh, imitate exactly any creature and so this movie is all tension and it's one of the things that makes it great it basically it's it's you know if you want to see paranoia on screen this is this is the movie you want to see because yeah this thing can uh, not only does it, it it kills you but it it simulates you entirely including your thoughts and feelings to the point where you won't even know if you're the thing until it's time to you know to kill your next victim so it's it's great. And it, what makes it great largely is the cast. The cast is amazing. You know, you have guys like Kurt Russell as the main character, McCready, Wilford Brimley as Dr. Blair, Keith David, a very young Keith David as Childs. It's really, there's no weak link in the cast. They all do a, a perfect, perfect job of portraying, you know, a bunch of guys trapped in this outpost in the middle of nowhere who all of a sudden, can't trust each other you know it's set up pretty well this is one of the one of the scenes that i wanted to talk to because we're not going to go through the movie step by step 
but there are some things we do want to talk about. And this is one of them is that when you get introduced to the cast and you see all these characters, you know, a guy named Nalls and Windows and Palmer and Clark and all these other people that do things, you you immediately get the sense, even though there's not that much dialogue, that they're just showing you the characters. They're like hanging out, playing ping pong, <laughs> smoking weed, talking on the radio. And you immediately get the sense of these guys' relationships and how they work with each other. Yeah, exactly. It feels like it's kind of like with uh, with Jaws, you know, with with those three main characters, you just, you know, like it's just, you know, dudes hanging out that uh, like just all of a sudden are, are, you know, they're gelling and they know each other and they're hanging out and they're in this amazing circumstance. And that's what this is, except there's 12 of them. And it's it, you know, that everybody does an amazing job. I mean, it's a they all interact you know, perfectly with, like Marcus said, there's, there's very limited, you know, how much can you really have as far as, you know, character building, uh, you know, with 12 different characters, it's, it's an ensemble cast, but they all do a, a fantastic job. And, and when these guys start going down and they do go down quick, you, you know, you definitely feel for them. As Luke mentioned, Kurt Russell is our main character. And as he has been so many times for so many John Carpenter movies, especially in the eighties, but we can introduce to him. He's playing an old chess game called uh, chess master or something. It's on an old computer. He gets super pissed off at it and he dumps his J and B whiskey into the computer circuit boards. <laughs> and he fries it. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he says you cheat bitch, <laughs> and, which is great. Cause I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> and, uh, and McCready as a character is, you, you know, if you've seen any Kurt Russell movie from the 80s, especially with John Carpenter, he's playing the same character. I mean, let's be honest, like his character, Snake Plissken in Escape from New York and even uh, uh, Jack from Big Trouble Little China to the same degree are all the same character. But they're all so much fun to watch no matter what he's doing. And McCready in this movie is you first see him, he's in his long underwear you know, runs out in the fucking Antarctic minus 20 degrees. Nobody's dressed for this place. And then he's a helicopter pilot. But whenever he's flying or whenever he's outside, he's got this gigantic, goofy hat on with like the brims, brims bent in the front and the back. It's uh, He's wearing the Yosemite Sam hat. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty it's pretty much what it is. And yeah, he's he's playing those characters, like Mike just said. But it's definitely, you know, this movie is a lot more grounded in reality, even though it, you know, deals with a, a shape-shifting, you know, murderous alien. So it's, you know, it's a, a much more reserved performance. And uh, he does great. He's a, he's a you know, becomes a, a, an awesome leader. One of the other things that makes this movie great is the special effects, which are, to this day, 40 years later, look better than anything that's come out recently. Man, no doubt. Uh, you know, and it's... I haven't seen this one in a, in a few years and uh, you know, it just reminded me of how amazing this is. I mean, like, like Marcus said, this came out in 1982. It's, it's 2022 as, as we're recording this and it still blew my mind tonight. It blew from my fucking mind. Uh, you know, special effects artist, Rob Bateen, who was a, who's 22 years old at the time. He's the one that came up with, uh, with these designs, you know, these, uh, these sculptures as it is. And, and these, you know, obviously he had a huge crew that worked with him. You know, but oh my God, does this stuff look amazing? I, I can't, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine anybody even today looking at the stuff and not be impressed by it. It's it's amazing, you know. And he's he's there's other, like I said, there's other people that are uh, 
you know, contributed to this. Albert uh, Whitlock, he's a, like a legendary uh, matte uh, painting artist who contributes uh, to this movie. Susan Turner, who was the model maker, you know, she was the one behind the uh, the uh, the UFO at the beginning that crashes crashed lands into Earth. It's hard to describe just how like how fantastic it looks because you know we're so we're we're so used to CGI and. Uh, don't get me wrong the cgi today looks amazing especially if it's done by a bigger studio but to know that it's all practical and it's all in front of the actors and they're reacting to it as it's happening and it's so smooth you know like one of those things that you know is always such like a, a a stigma for these you know these movies made in the 70s and the 80s you know like think about the ray harryhausen and stuff like that is that it's all fantastic and it's amazing it's a lot of work but Sometimes it can look like herky jerky, you know, especially with stop motion animation, which is really, which is really not a lot of in this movie. There's a little bit of stop motion at the end, but this movie is mainly like animatronics and puppetry. And it just, the way it moves is so natural. It is. It just, it just looks like, it looks organic, which is what the thing's supposed to be. You know, when it assimilates people, you know, this is a, an alien organism that's been, you know, we're led to believe been killing you know, living creatures across the uh, the universe for God knows how long. And so we see this thing shift to different shapes and forms. And it's always, you know, we, we, we see a lot of it. I mean, it, it and it looks amazing it, and it's all done. Like Marcus said, practically, you know, 82, obviously there's no CGI. So the, the first time you see this in motion, cause you've seen a couple of the, like the character models, the creature models uh, ahead of time that are just sort of, you know, laying down on a table but the first time you see it is that dog that we mentioned at the beginning who is actually the thing is put in the kennel with the other dogs and like all of a sudden it just starts shaking and then like the dog's head turns and it like splits into four different like flaps and a tongue flies out and then like things come flying out of its back and it's just like there's so many different layers when you think the thing is done it like another thing pops out of it yeah, it, it, there's so many moving parts, right? I mean, it's just like if there's <laughs> once you know you see one dog get get grappled, and then you get another dog, get, you know, it's sprayed by you know these you know innards of the thing, and then a thing opens up like a flower, but it's actually like a series of dog tongues with you know with teeth on them, and it's just it's so hard to describe because it's and so crazy. Skulls and and you know like you think it's one size and then like you know like this dog thing is on the ground and all the guys are looking at it like what the hell is this And they're waiting for the flamethrower and like you know like hands grow out of the top of it and it like grabs the ceiling and pulls itself up it's fucking nuts yeah it's a (laughs) you know mcready this is when you see mcready take charge and you know he he orders uh you know the flamethrower butt out which i don't know why they have a flamethrower but they do they have multiple uh, flamethrowers they have have a couple of them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and then they uh yeah so they, they burn you know the, the remnants of, of whatever the hell they just saw uh and they you know they think that they're uh, they're done but they're they're far from done now this is where that tension really builds because you know there's the share of the special effects which we'll get into a couple other scenes of that but a lot of this movie is just you know now they know that it can take the form of other things and you know one of their other characters named bennings they catch him in mid transformation. So like it's an interrupted transformation. They they light him on fire because they see him out in the snow and like his hand is all thing-ish, I guess. You know, it's got like, you know, like think of like a character from Resident Evil, the video game. 
and he's like holding on to it and they like look at him and he opens his mouth and this like ungodly screen comes out of his mouth and then they burn him so they know that one of them any of them all of them some of them could be the thing and yeah and dr dr blair there's a character called uh called dr blair and he's played by uh wilford brimley he is doing his research on his like 1982 you know google vision or whatever he's got going on over there and uh he figures out that uh you know what's going on because they, they you know they have the that dog uh carcass all that um you know that mutated dog carcass to that after they burned it he's exploring it examining it and he figures out that uh you know what this thing is and what it can do and that if it gets loose if it leaves uh antarctic if the if it leaves the antarctic and uh you know it gets introduced into the population it can take over the world in a, a very very you know quick time and he goes crazy he can't deal with it yeah so there's a number of scenes of the you know like guys trying to figure out what's going on and you know not trusting each other and you know things get to be too much for some characters this character named norris gets into some distress and they the doctor in the station puts him up on the um uh, the uh, surgical table and is going to give him the defibrillator. Um, and this is like possibly the most famous, famous scene from this movie. Still to this day, even though I know what's happening and I know when it's going to happen, it's still so surprising and takes you so off guard. Dr. Copper decides to use the defibrillator on him. So he shocks him once and then, you know, clear. And then, uh, you know, goes to shock him again. And as he does this, Norris's entire abdomen and chest just burst open. Like a uh, giant mouth. It turns into a giant mouth with giant teeth. And just as Dr. Copper was about to, you know, put those paddles down, he ends up plunging his arms into the maw of this of this mouth. And uh, it clamps down and it bites his arms off. And it is incredible. And then uh, Norris's body is still on the table and like this long, like alien type looking thing, you know, like looks like a chest burster from the alien movie pops out and like goes towards the ceiling at the very top of it is like Norris's face. Right. And at the same time, Norris's actual head comes detached from his body. <laughs> it grows out like, like crab legs, spider legs. And starts crawling away. Meantime, there's fire going on because uh, McCready is burning like another, you know, thin creature. So everything's on fire. I mean, it is an incredible scene. And it's kind of funny because I was, I was watching the, uh, the behind the scenes documentary on this. And, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, this was kind of a nightmare to shoot. You know, it was a, it was a whole it took a month to set up. Okay, to, to, to get all this shit working the way you're supposed to. They, you know, they have puppeteers, you know, inside the table. Uh, they have the guy that plays Vance, uh, Charles Hallahan. He's like inside the table as well, but it's only it's like his head sticking out. And uh, they have all this like all these chemicals that are, you know, supposed to like burst through like the arteries and veins and stuff and do all the squirting that happens in the scene. And at the same time, John Carpenter was like, hey, this scene's supposed to be on fire. So we need to make it look like it's on fire. So they put like a, a, a bar that emanated gas so they could uh, light on fire uh, to make it seem like, you know, there was fire in the scene. And uh, it needs to say these uh, fumes combined with the gas combined with the fire. The first time they tried it, uh, basically a big old explosion. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. But uh, yeah, it uh, everything caught fire and they all that work was uh, 
was ruined. So they had to reset it at least at least a couple of times to do it again to make it look the way it did. So while we're on the special effects, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the to the ending of the movie. We mentioned Blair earlier, you know, like sort of freaked out on everybody, and we don't see him for a long time. Well, it turns out he's he's definitely a thing, and he has been building a spaceship like underneath the snow. And at this point, McCready, a couple of the characters uh, find it, blow it up, and are having sort of like the final confrontation with the thing and this is where we get our little bit of stop motion animation but it's like the thing and it's like biggest form throughout the whole movie and again just like everything else it looks so good because it's like a combination of all the different forms that's been in in the movie you know it's like an amalgamation of all the things that that have happened to it over the course of the plot and uh man it's again it's so great it's uh you you're down to about what is it like like three main guys at this point you know you got mccrady you got Nalls, who's this uh what is he? He's kind of what is he like, he's like a, cook? a cook? I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's the cook. There is uh, Gary, who is uh, originally the the you know the leader of the group, but he kind of like you know he gave McCready the you know he passed the baton on to him as far as leadership duties. And, and Childs is Childs is alive too, but we haven't seen him for a little while. He's gone off, so you know, keep that in mind for the ending of the movie. Right, he kind of ran off after this uh, the infamous uh, the couch scene. One thing leads to another. Basically, they they realize that well the only way we can keep the the thing from taking over the earth is by destroying the camp and uh so they start blowing everything up all the buildings you know all their living quarters you know they they hunt it down they 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 think they blow it up you know Niles and Gary both get killed by the thing and uh you know it looks like McCready's the only one left alive so Luke mentioned it the infamous couch scene and we're going to jump back to that one for a minute um, before you get to this ending scene, you still have more people alive. Um, and uh, McCready has figured out a way to test people to see if they're the thing. So he's he's got people tied to a couch while he's got samples of everybody's blood. And he's heating up this wire in the flamethrower. And, and as they've seen that, you know, like the thing reacts to heat, um, he's going to touch the blood samples with the wire. Right, yeah. So basically... What they're saying is that the thing is going to react to being attacked. So if the blood from, let's say, you know, a host that is actually the thing, that's actually part of the thing. So it's going to try and defend itself. So that's what McCready, you know, ends up, uh, you know, that's the whole blood test of, and which, by the way, is in the original story. And it's it's very true to, to what happens in the uh, original story. And it's very, very cool. You know, you got a few people tied to the couch, including Gary who, uh, you know, does not take too kindly to to being tied to the couch. <laughs> no. hence, our, hence our opening bit there. Uh, and um, yeah, it's a fucking another awesome tense scene where they're, you know, they have a, a blood sample from each of the surviving cast members and they're they're dipping this, you know, red hot wire into each uh, each blood sample. And well, most what's of them so, are... But what's so good about it is that they you know somebody's gonna be a thing and you know there's gonna be a reaction of some sort but it doesn't happen when you think it does it like takes a while and then when it finally does it's just like holy shit i forgot yeah like one of these guys is a thing and then like it's palmer you know who's like this you know like this pot smoking dude uh that you know sort of ornery um but they're all tied to the couch so this guy's like changing into the thing as they're all tied up next to it and everybody's like oh get me away from here 
Yeah, it's a fucking it's just man, what an amazing scene. Another amazing scene of mass panic. You know, you got Palmer, he's tied down, and Gary is right next to him. Yeah. Which, <laughs> he's just like, holy fuck. And uh, you know, when when uh McCready puts the hot wire down into uh uh Palmer's blood, you know, the blood absolutely reacts and it yeah. like jumps out of the dish. Yep. And uh meanwhile, Palmer just starts to turn and his head splits in two and it turns into like uh you know, another like a like a maw full of teeth and chops uh, down well, on another character's head named yep. Windows, who we haven't really talked about. Yeah, eats but, uh, eats, eats yeah. windows. <laughs> Uh, holy shit yeah they so they burned those you know they burned those two and um you know that's that's when uh gary you know in in, in full indignation you know yells his uh, infamous line i know you gentlemen have been through a lot and when you find the time i'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch after all this stuff has happened and the station's blown up you're left with McCready, Kurt Russell, and he's sort of just, you know, hanging out by the burning wreckage. And then Child shows back up, played by Keith David. And it's sort of like that Blade Runner ending, ending where it's like, oh, is he a replicant? Uh, but, you know, like, you know, Child's, you see Child's and you see McCready. And are they both assimilated? Are they both human? Is one of them assimilated? And it leaves you wanting. It, le- <laughs> it doesn't tell you just sort of ends but it's so it's it's done really well very effective ending you know it's it's it ends with the two of them they're like well the you know everything's on fire and it's warm right now but that's gonna that's not gonna last long and mcgrady basically says neither will we so it's you know just a matter of time before you know the antarctic uh temperatures catch up with them and you know if if one of them is the thing they're gonna be fine until uh you know somebody finds the remnants of this camp well you know if Whoever's human is just going to die. What I didn't realize until this point, I read that uh, John Carpenter, when asked about the ending, uh, leaving it ambiguous as it is, he was kind of flabbergasted. Like, I don't understand why people are confused. Because if you look in the movie, and yeah, it kind of cheats a little bit. But when McCready talks, you can see, you know, steam coming out when, when you know, he's got a, he's got a, you know, hot breath coming out when he when he's speaking. Whereas when Childs speaks, he doesn't have any, you know, he doesn't cause any steam at all. So he's like, yeah, it's, it's fucking obviously Childs. <laughs> <laughs> so here, we're, is fucking debate time on the Review to Death podcast. John Carpenter is, from what I've read and what I've heard, is that he's given like 12 different fucking answers to this question when people ask him. Sometimes he said, like, I can't believe you didn't know. Sometimes he said, oh, well, you know, maybe I don't know either. So he's been purposely vague about it. And, you know, I, I've heard about the breath theory, but Childs, you can see his fucking breath. When he first shows up, you see his breath. And then, granted, yes, for most of the conversation, his breath is not there, but it does pop back in at the end. So I almost feel like they did it on purpose because they're trying to give you something else to look at. I don't know, man. Like, I had no idea about this information until I watched it tonight, and it kind of blew my mind. Uh, and the way I want to explain Child's breath being visible at the beginning is because he kind of, like, walks out of um, out of the flames almost. He walks past the flames. So, like, maybe he's warm from that. No. No, it's coming out of his fucking mouth, man. I don't know, man. It, it, it was pretty – I don't know. It, it felt pretty blatant. What do you guys think? 
<laughs> and and also I'll say that the, the other character Bennings who was caught mid transformation you see his fucking breath when he's outside too and I'm going to say these things assimilate creatures perfectly so you tell me it wouldn't like make up a fucking breath that's true that. Bennings death is is a that's that's a good point because that's that's kind of part of how his iconic death because he he looks up and he screams at you know that hideous weird alien scream and then you know all the steam comes out of his mouth too so yeah that's true it's something to think about so i guess you know what do you guys think leave us some comments childs mccready both of them one of them what do you think we'd love to hear from you guys so give me your final thoughts on the thing man what else can i tell you about the thing it's so fucking good it's so fucking good it's uh it's an amazing movie uh full of tension and some real horror and great characters. It's my favorite horror movie of all time. So yeah, go go see the thing. You know, this is one of the classics. It's such a good example of a John Carpenter movie and a great example of practical special effects and what it can be if you just put in the work to do so. The movie's almost two hours long and it never feels never feels long, even though it technically it's like it's slow paced to a purpose you're never bored you're never bored you're always were you're always trying to figure out what's going on the characters are played really well yeah it's one of my favorites if not my favorite as well Since it's sci-fi month, we're going to do a little bit of a new segment at the end here where we're covering the movies in the podcast and the movies that we like. But we'd also like to talk about some of the things that we enjoy in the sci-fi universe that are not movies, whether it be uh, books or graphic novels or podcasts or even TV shows, which you don't really cover. And we're going to take turns talking about something in that realm. So I'm going to start tonight. And I'm going to start with the things that sort of got me into sci-fi because when I was growing up and I started, you know, doing things, I really, you know, sci-fi wasn't a genre that I was into. Were you Luke? Um, you know, it was kind of, it was not, no, not, not the thing that I started out with. I started out with horror <laughs> right away. Uh, it was Stephen King and then, uh sci-fi was the next thing actually it was arthur c Clarke that i got into and then i, I got into his uh uh his ranma series ramna series i can't remember how you pronounce it and uh anyway and after that it was sci-fi and horror all the way baby so the the thing that really got me into the sci-fi world was a trilogy of books called the mars trilogy from kim stanley robinson I've heard of this. I've definitely heard of this. And I remember you reading them uh, when we were in high school together. Yeah, I yeah I got to them, you know, my like my junior, my senior year in high school. So 1998, 1999. The first one of these books was written in 1992. And then it came out in 93 and then 96. Um, and it's the Mars trilogy. It's Red Mars, Green Mars and Blue Mars. And then a couple of years after that was done, there was like a short story compendium written in the Mars, like the Mars trilogy universe. 
And like this story is huge as you know, a lot of sci-fi sci-fi stories tend to be this whole story from red Mars to blue Mars covers like two centuries. Like it's a long time. It starts in the year 2026 with the first hundred people to go to Mars to colonize it and to terraform it and make it a livable place because earth is dying. Oh, sweet. So like four years from now, man, that's great. It's going to be <laughs> yeah, like, right. Like we're heading Jeff towards Be- that direction. It's going to be Jeff Bezos and his buddies. <laughs> uh, and for, for those not familiar, Kim Stanley Robinson is a, an American sci-fi writer and he's what you would call a hard science fiction writer, which means that he is really scientific with his science and uh, scientific with his science. Look at <laughs> this guy over here. Um, <laughs> What I mean by that is that he doesn't go past what is scientifically possible. I'm going to go ahead and th- say that he's going to he's going to explain a lot about why very, this works. Very meticulous detail. <laughs> yes. So I, I will admit, I almost lost me at the end of Red Mars. If it not for the characters being so well written and the story being so intriguing, because these books are long, right? I mean, they're you know when you're done with this whole thing, you're over a thousand pages. Uh, but towards the end of Red Mars, like as they're as the first 100 is having their, you know, like sociopolitical uh, squabbles, which, you know, they're, they're not like, you know, like violent combat. This is like people arguing like it's a book about people arguing. Right. So there's like 150 pages in the middle where they just like talk about every article in the Mars Constitution. I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> Yeah, I remember you telling me about this back when we were uh, when teenagers, and I remember you reading these these big old tomes. And oh. um, at the time, I was thinking like, man, this this might not be for me. But thinking, you know, listening to you talk about it now, it actually it sounds pretty fucking great. Well, if you can get past that part, it's the rest of it is so good because you know, Red Mars is when it's first starting. Green Mars takes place it's like sixty or eighty years. It's been a while since I've read these afterwards, and it's when the planet is starting to grow plants for itself. They figured out how to terraform it, and then Blue Mars takes place, um, starts right after Green Mars ends, and then like goes for like a hundred and fifty years, and it's when the planet is basically another Earth, right? You know, there's like longevity treatments, so some of the first hundreds still exist under different names, and there's a lot of different like ins and outs to the story. There's really interesting things about how like people would be if they were actually born on Mars, like how their bodies would be different, which uh, really lends itself well to one of the short stories that I absolutely adored from the Martians book. Uh, and it's this short story is called Arthur uh, Stenbeck Brings the Curveball to Mars. And it's all about how the game of baseball would work on the surface of Mars. <laughs> that sounds awesome, um, man. So, yeah, go check out the Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's what got me into sci-fi. Hopefully, it'll do the same for you. The Review to Death podcast is written and produced by the both of us. We release new episodes on Mondays and Fridays. Thank you to Groove Witness for the use of their music. You can find them at GrooveWitness.us. Check out our written reviews at the link in the description. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Review to Death. Thank you for listening. And Luke, tell us what's coming up next. We're coming up next. We're going to watch the Paul W.S. Anderson cult classic, Event Horizon. That's pretty much all I got. Later, Gators. Hey, Brandon, you need a light? McCready has no time for your bullshit.
He just wants to go back to his scotch. Yeah, throw some fucking grenades at this dog. I hate dogs. I'm a cat person. Boom. Oh, fuck. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we brought all these flamethrowers for this scientific expedition. <laughs>